Good morning. Thanks, team, for leading us already into the deep water this morning. Um, we are grateful for the Lord and the fact that He is able uh, to be our firm foundation, that He can hold the weight of whatever it is in our lives and, in fact, uh, take it on for us as we lay the heaviness of what's going on at His feet and trust Him with it. Go ahead and grab some scripture. We're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. We're continuing to work through the minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're called minor only because of the size of the book, not that they are less important. I love that we adhere to the truth that the whole of the Bible, all of it, is God's Word and holds importance and relevance for us today, which is why we can find ourselves this morning in a little three-chapter book written so long ago. So turn to the part of your Bible that you've never, ever turned to before, Zephaniah. If you're using a hard copy, feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. No shame in that game. Just three small chapters, but a wealth of truth. Um, The message of Zephaniah is similar to other prophets of God, and in a way, it's a micro version of the overall story of the Bible. We have this pattern. God sets his love upon his people. God sets his love upon his people, and then God's people rebel, and then God justly disciplines his people in love, and God extends mercy to his people. It's an overall story of God's steadfast love, his enduring love put on display right in front of us, even here in Zephaniah. A bit more about uh, the man Zephaniah. He's not a character that we study very often in times like this. Uh, Not a whole lot of detail to give you, but just a little bit. Zephaniah, he was almost certainly a person of some influence, mostly due to his family heritage. He was a direct descendant of King Hezekiah, and he was probably a man of affluence and renown. This book was written uh, somewhere between 641 and 622 BC. And get this, in in the context, God's people were in the midst of a long period of rebellion. And so this book is a book of judgment. It's a call to repentance. And finally, a declaration of God's gracious and merciful work on behalf of those who would repent and turn to Him. And as we work through Zephaniah this morning, we're going to kind of get a little overview and then zero in on chapter 3 for the most part. And as we work through Zephaniah, here's the overall feel. Uh, we kind of touched base on what the story or the theme of the story is in, in falling kind of as a macro version of the overall story of the scripture, but here's specifically what the overall feel is. First, there appears to be no hope. That's what we're going to see first. First, there appears to be no hope. That's mostly in chapter one. Next, mostly in chapter two, there's a glimmer of hope. Not very much hope. A glimmer of hope. 
And then third, there's a glaring, manifested, realized hope at the end of chapter three. And so let's jump in on the no hope portion. Does that sound fun? Let's do that part first. Zephaniah chapter one, uh, we're going to jump around. We're going to read a few verses in chapter one and then see that there's no hope in each of the next two chapters as we look at a couple of instances of specifically why there's no hope, what they've done, what God's people have done that would lead to them not having any hope and what they've done to deserve the judgment that's coming. And so let's start Zephaniah chapter one, verses one through six. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. I got all of them right. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, verse 2, I will utterly sweep away, what? What does it say? Everything. This is God talking from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, meaning they bow down to the sun, the stars, the sky, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So there's the first reason why judgment is coming. They've turned their back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. And as we jump to the next few verses, there are more reasons why judgment is coming. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are what? Complacent. Those who say in their hearts, this is interesting, look what they say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Do you see the complacency? Do you see that they're like, well, God, the one who doesn't do good or bad, maybe the one that doesn't even exist, do you see what they're saying here? And as we begin to walk through some of these reasons why judgment is coming, I would encourage us to do some self-examination and say, do I believe any of these same things? Do I walk in some of these same thought patterns that led to their judgment? Look at verse 17 in chapter 1. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. There's another reason, right? Why judgment is coming because simply they have sinned against the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. There's another reason here judgment is coming. Verse 15, this is the exultant city. Speaking of Jerusalem where God's people live, this is the exultant city that lives securely. That said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. Now, I doubt any of us have said that today out loud, (laughs) right? None of us walked in, maybe during the greeting time. They're like, oh, what's your name? Well, glad you asked. My name's Dustin. I am, and there is no one else. 
That'd be an awkward greeting time. I don't know what your response to that would be. Okay, I'm going to go sit back down now. But yet, don't, our, don't we live that way, right? We, we, that, that may not come across our lips, but that's the way that we live. I am and there is no one else. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. More reason why judgment is coming. Chapter 3, verse 2. Speaking of Jerusalem in the pronoun, it says, She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And remember, we're laying all these judgments over ourselves, right? And looking for ways that, that maybe we have the same mentality as what the people of God did here in this book of Zephaniah in the time of Zephaniah. And we should stop and ask, is this you in any way, shape, or form? In honesty, some of these things that we've read, the judgments against them, why the judgment's coming. That's dark stuff that causes a lot of self-examination and honesty to be able to get to some of these things and go, yeah, that, that's, that's the way I live. That, that's the way I've been living in a sense. But before we can ever get to anything remotely hopeful, there has to be a real sense of darkness and dread and great need. Why we would spend the first few moments of our time examining our own lives for the darkness that was true of God's people during the days of Zephaniah and the arrogance, right, that we see in those quotes, those ways that God's people were described in arrogance. See, without recognizing our place on our own before a holy God, there can't ever really be any hope. That's why we're not afraid to talk about darkness here. That's why we're not afraid to talk about struggle here, just like Lisa was talking about. We're not afraid to talk about that. The darkness of our circumstances, the darkness of our own hearts, the darkness of our sin. And if you've spent any length of time here with us, you know this. We don't shy away from that. Because without seeing that darkness, hope doesn't make any sense. Not even a glimmer. Well, is there any hope to be had here? Maybe. Perhaps. At this point, a glimmer. Only a glimmer of hope. A faint light in the midst of lots of darkness. There's lots of light here in the room uh, where we are right now. You may be able to find a corner or two, maybe back here behind the stage with a little more darkness, but it's still very light in here. And I wonder if you can imagine pitch darkness. I would lay before us, there's no real darkness like the literal darkness of some hotel rooms at night. And I've stayed in lots of hotels, and I think that the more you pay for a hotel room, the darker it is in there at night because they have like the dimming curtains, right? The blackout curtains. And it can get super dark in a nice hotel. The cheaper hotels, you know, the curtains don't quite close all the way and light still comes in. But the expensive hotels, it gets dark in there except for a glimmer of light that comes from underneath the door of, from, from the hallway, right? 
That's usually the one light you can depend on in a super dark hotel room is once you get at just the right angle, you can kind of navigate your way at night using the, where the light's coming in from underneath the door. But that's just a glimmer, right? That's just a, a glimmer of light in the midst of a lot of darkness. I remember one time Julie and I were staying in a hotel and when we turned all the lights off, we were like, man, this is a dark hotel room. I mean, someone, someone could be in the room right now, and we would never know it. And then we went to sleep. <laughs> well, like three in the morning, I got up to use the bathroom, and I couldn't quite see the glimmer underneath the door. I was kind of uh, stumbling around on my way to the bathroom. What I did not know was that about one minute ago, Julie had gotten up and gone to the bathroom. <laughs> so it's super dark hotel room. And so I'm stumbling around the hotel room like, I can't quite see where the door is yet. There's, I can't see a glimmer of light. And right at the same time, right between, right where, but kind of halfway between the bed and the bathroom, we stumble into each other. And I've never been, and to this day, I've never been more afraid in my life. We were both like, ah, and both screamed, we were, oh, and so like the next night, uh, we were staying there multiple nights, the next night, we told each other, if you get up to go to the bathroom, will you just wake me up and tell me so that I know you're not in bed and I know you're wandering around the hotel room? Glimmer, right? Just a glimmer in the darkness underneath that door. And that's a little bit of the hope that we're going to see here in chapter two. It's not as if someone flipped on the light. That's going to be more chapter three. There's just a glimmer of hope here. Look at chapter two, verses one, two, and three, and pay attention to the language and see if you can see the, the glimmer that there is. Gather together, yes. Gather, O shameless nation. This is a, would have been kind of like a call to repentance. They come together to repent. Verse 2. Before the decree takes effect. Before God's judgment comes. Before the decree takes effect. Continue with me. Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before... There comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and here's the glimmer, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's just a glimmer, right? It's just a glimmer of hope right there. And I love the usage of before. He's calling them to repentance before God's judgment. Before, before, before. Four times there, just in verse 2. And then perhaps there'll be some hope. Perhaps you'll escape the judgment. And the note on the image of humility here, the glimmer of hope is for those who are humble. More on humility in just a second. Let's get to the glaring hope, the hope realized, the hope manifested. Chapter 3, starting in verse 11, we may skip a couple of verses just for the sake of time, but eventually we'll go through the end of the chapter. This is a longer section, and I want us to dig in here and, and hear 
God's Word, chapter 3, verse 11. This is the hope realized, full-on hope. No glimmer anymore. This is full-on hope, chapter 3, verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. Because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Skip down to uh, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Well, why? Why all the rejoicing? Well, we get it in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. That sounds awesome. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And then in the next few verses, God uses the phrase, I will, seven times. That's a lot for just three verses. Seven times, emphasis on what he will do. He's saying, I will do this. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now when we read prophecies like this. We need to realize there are elements of this hopeful prophecy that were for the Israelites that, that, that would, would have been this generation and the coming generation right then who would be brought back to the land after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Some of this was for them. There was second, some of these elements of this prophecy that were fulfilled when Christ came 2,000 years ago. Some of those prophecies were fulfilled then. And then Thirdly, some of these will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. And without getting really deep into the weeds, I want us to see and hear some impactful truths for today. Look at verse 17 again. This is key, and this is where we're going to drill down here for a couple of minutes. Verse 17. Listen to this. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. And if we just take that phrase by phrase, this is where it's going to get, this is where there may be truce this morning if the Lord hasn't already that he points to and says, this one's for you. This first one, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And I would ask, who needs to hear that one today? Does the Lord feel far away? Does he seem weak or powerless in the midst of your circumstance? Or maybe do you recognize your need for salvation today? The Lord God is in your midst, 
a mighty one who will save. Next phrase I want to jump to is this one that says, he will quiet you with his love. This was a new one for me. I don't remember reading this one before. He will quiet you with his love. In light of this truth, one author prays this. This is his prayer to the Lord. In light of this truth, that he will quiet us with his love, the author prays this. He says, there's so much noise around us and in us. It's like a constant ringing in the ears of my heart, and the roar grows louder. Lord, in your gentleness and humility, shush still and calm me on the inside. I desperately need the rest you alone can give me. It's hard to turn off my racing heart, thoughts, and fears. Jesus, still me now with your love. Love that. The next couple of phrases, if we're putting a couple of these together, it says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, God singing over us loudly, and what a foreign concept that is. And I think in that sermon a few weeks ago, I mentioned how I cannot wait to hear what the voice of the Lord actually sounds like singing. I'm sure it's beautiful and terrifying and amazing all at once to hear what God's voice sounds like as he sings. But God himself rejoicing over us, even joyously singing over us. Well, what's this about? Why is this in here? What am I supposed to take from this? And when we think about the truth of God singing over us in joy, there are two ditches we can get caught in when it comes to this truth of God singing over us, these two ditches on either side of that truth, when it comes to him singing and rejoicing over us, we should not get caught in either of these two ditches. And here's what the two ditches are. Ditch number one, that you might find yourself when you think about God singing over you. You might think, well, man, I'm quite the spiritual catch. And God's lucky to have me on his team. That's why he's singing over me. A little louder, God. It makes sense that God would rejoice over me. That came a little too naturally for me. Can we see that's arrogant and short-sighted? You're thinking too much of yourself. You're forgetting your identity in Christ. And forgetting that anything good in you is because of him. So when he rejoices over you, it's because of what he's done in you through Christ and not because you're quite the spiritual catch. Second ditch. This ditch, when we think about him rejoicing over us. If you're like, no, that's, that first ditch is not me. I don't find myself there very often. Maybe it's this second ditch. When we think about him rejoicing over us, and this ditch goes a little like this. I'm such a mess. God could never rejoice over me. Maybe one day if I get my life together, he might like me or love me, and maybe then he could rejoice over me. Maybe one day he could rejoice over me if I could get all my crap together. You're forgetting your identity in Christ. You're thinking too lowly 
of yourself. If your creator, the God of the universe, rejoices over you as his child, who are you to second guess that? Who are you to second guess that? Do you think that your opinion matters more than his? Do you think your opinion is more important than his? Do you think he's not qualified to tell you who you are? Hmm. Interesting. See, both of these ditches puts you in a place of arrogance. Both of these ditches put you in a place of arrogance. Remember how humility was mentioned several times? What we read when God's describing His people? See, we think of humility as thinking lowly of ourselves, but maybe that's not quite accurate. I would lay before us the possibility that humility is rightly understanding our place and our identity in light of who He is. See, we think of humility as walking with our head down low and just thinking of ourselves in a terrible way, but I'm not sure that's true humility. Humility is rightly understanding our place and our identity in light of who He is. See, upon receiving forgiveness of our sin through what Christ has done on our behalf, we're given this new identity. We were enemies of God, but now we're children of God. Think back to the two ditches. On either side of God rejoicing over us. Think back to these two ditches. First ditch, see, as believers, when we focus on our old identity as enemies of God, we find His forgiveness of us hard to process. And even though He's forgiven us, this is more the second ditch, even though He's forgiven us, we can't forgive ourselves, which puts us in a place of arrogance before Him, as if our word is more important than His. We're forgetting our identity that He's given us. And about the first ditch, as believers, when we find ourselves thinking that we're His child because we're so awesome as if it had anything to do with our goodness, again, we've seated ourselves in a place of arrogance. May we, in humility, think rightly about ourselves by viewing ourselves in light of who He is and what He's already done for us who were once far from him. Last passage we'll look at is in Ephesians chapter 2. We go here pretty often. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I want us to zero in on our identity, who, who he's made us to be, and in hope that we might grasp what humility is, viewing ourselves rightly in light of who he is and what he's done. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me. Read on the screen. Close your eyes so you can absorb whatever it is, whatever works for you as we read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But 
God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Church, he rejoices over us, his children. May we in humility accept what he's done for us and in us. And may we in humility realize that everything good in us, he's placed there for his glory and honor and not our own. Church, the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I don't know what specifically the Lord has offered you through this word today through his scriptures, but I'm confident of the power of his word, confident in that. I'm also confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. We're going to do something a little different as we end our service today. Instead of us standing and singing together, I'm going to have Lisa just sing a song over us here in a bit. The lyrics are going to be on the screen, and in a sense, may the Lord sing over you this morning. May we receive from him these truths which are rooted in the truths of the scriptures. There won't be communion this morning, just want us to sit and allow this truth to come over us from his word. Allow him, maybe in a way, to hear his voice singing over you like it talks about in the scriptures. Let's go to him in prayer, and uh, team, you can come up and lead us. Just want to give us a moment to pause. Maybe there were things that this morning that you pinpointed as being from the Lord as we read through the scriptures. Maybe there were some of those phrases, specifically in verse 17, that the Lord in a way, attached to you and said, this is for you, my child. And these are, as we sing, as Lisa leads us and as we listen, some of the truths that we read in the scriptures will be right in the, in the song that's being sung over us. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for the truth that you sing over us in joy. And we recognize the two ditches that that could lead us to. One, in pride and arrogance, we think that we're really something, that you chose us because we're really something, and we miss the fact that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And maybe the other ditch, we have a hard time understanding how you could rejoice over us and we find ourselves beating, beating, beating ourselves up spiritually 
and forgetting our identity in you and leaning into that. Pray that you would keep us out of these two ditches of arrogance, Lord, and lead us to a place of humility, a place of rightly understanding who you are and what you've done for us and how that affects our identity. May we rightly see ourselves in light of who you are and what you've done. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.